0: Vegas, Route 91. On October 1, 2017, a gunman in Las Vegas, Nevada, opened fire on a group of people attending the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival. Without apparent motive, he murdered 60 people and wounded hundreds more. We had the chance to sit down with a group of first responders who were either directly responding to the incident or were instrumental in setting forth the changes in training that followed. This is the first time they had the chance to sit down and tell their story in their own words. I know some of the guys that were there, so I've had the chance to hear the stories. To say that these guys were appreciative of the chance to tell it is an understatement. Let's roll this. I hope you enjoy it. Episode 2, The Call. The Call. So this is the uh, alert program coming to you out of Texas State University. And our podcast is being named The Call because as first responders... Uh, and fire guys, we are known for uh, answering the call as we go, and we never know what the call is going to be or what it's going to be or when it's going to come. But we're all ready to answer. And um, yes, I'm going to keep up the tradition of the, the strong rivalry between cops and firefighters. But we know in the end, pretty much, we depend on each other. So I'm going to be careful about it, just because Brian's sitting so close to me, and he's a fire guy, and he's a little bit bigger than me. So. My name is Eddie Molina. I am the Southeast Regional Manager for the ALERT program, and I handle programming for we're sending out training across the Southeast region, and we're starting up this podcast and I'm going to be helping host this. I'm going to introduce my partner, Casey.
1: Hi, Casey Williams. I'm the e-learning program manager for ALERT, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you all for joining us.
2: Dean, how about you? I'll try not to mess this up this time. I'm Dean Hennessy with Las Vegas Metro Police. Been with them for 21 years. I uh, am currently on the MACTAC section. I was one of the uh, original uh, officers to start the MACTAC section about 11 years ago. Excellent. Any background in um, first response or military or anything like that? I have no no prior military, and I was a reserve police officer in Iowa for uh, a couple years before I moved out here. Excellent. Jake?
3: Uh, Sergeant Jake Fisher. I'm a traffic sergeant now with Nevada Highway Patrol. Been with the patrol for just under seven years. Uh, for the last 18 months, I was full-time with the MACTAC Task Force.
0: Excellent, and military or anything like that?
3: Uh, nine years, US Army, uh, medical field, uh, combat medic, 68 Whiskey, and then was a medical training sergeant for the state of Nevada.
0: And how long have you been on the uh, state now?
3: Uh, just under seven years.
0: Seven years, okay, cool, great.
4: Travis. Hi, my name is Travis Mecca, and I'm the Public Information Officer for the Nevada Highway Patrol's Southern Command everything in the southern part of Nevada um, I've been on the department approximately six years prior to my time as a public information officer I spent the entirety of my career working uh, urban traffic on the graveyard shift I come from a law enforcement family locally I'm born and raised in the Las Vegas community and um, my whole background is based on things looking up to my parents who are in law enforcement and I got to say um, this is one of those careers where i feel that it was the first time in my life that i felt a sense of pride and um purpose where before i was making a lot more money prior to this career field but i, I, I guess i'm just explaining why I, I may have a lot of gray hair but only uh, six years on the department
5: <laughs> thanks travis how about you brian i'm brian O'Neill. i'm captain with the clark county fire department just started my 19th year with the department and i've been a paramedic here since 2006. I, uh, received the bid to the Mac Tech section as a law enforcement liaison, uh, back in August of last year. Excellent. Well, welcome.
0: So also in the audience, we have uh, deputy chief, uh, Warren Whitney out of the uh, Clark County fire service. Uh, he has 26 years on. Thanks for being here. Uh, Bobby Chamberlain, 21 years on the Metro. Uh, is it, is it do you call it Metro police department or is it just L, uh, LV Metro? Metropolitan police department. Metropolitan. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. Thank you. And Eric Jones, a fire captain for Las Vegas Fire and Rescue. Guys, thank you all for being here. So this recording is being done in Las Vegas, Nevada, inside the Mandalay Bay Hotel. So the subject of, of our, uh, our podcast today, or the subjects we're going to dance around a lot, is the Route 91 uh, concert shooting. So we call it y'all, you guys call it the 10-1 event. Everybody has a different way of describing it, but pretty much everybody, uh, everybody here in this area automatically goes back to saying 10-1. So I want to ask you all a little bit about that, and we'll work up to it. But I'd like to get a little bit more of y'all's background as we can. Um, Brian, what brought you into a uh, first responder, uh, I guess into the world of being a first responder? Sure.
5: Um, <clears throat> I moved to Las Vegas in 1999 after going to college to be a teacher. Uh, history major, coaching minor, uh, was a baseball player in college. And uh, when I first got here, I met a lot of people that were trying to get into the fire service and pushed me into taking some ENT classes. I had already taken some classes in injury prevention and first aid as part of the coaching minor. Uh, so I immediately went into, went, worked my way through paramedic school by going through the EMT series and the paramedic certification led into the fire service.
0: Which college did you play baseball at? Eastern Oregon. Sweet. So what position? Right field. Right field. Yeah. So in little league, typically the right fielder is the guy who. Yeah, uh, Jake's made, yeah, making know. a couple motions Thank about you. it. Thank you, Jake. But at, at, at an upper level, the, the right fielder is typically the guy with the strongest arm. Yes. So how fast were you throwing that ball? Uh, I
5: threw out uh, a couple of people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Cool. Travis, what about you? What brought you? What made you come over here? Now, obviously, you said your your family. Uh, was in, is a, in law enforcement. Yes. So what drew you out of your more lucrative field?
4: Uh, you know, I have to say what finally was the decision-making change for me that changed my whole life. As I, was, I like I said, it was kind of my midlife crisis. I was approaching 40, and then um, two Metro officers were ambushed and murdered, Alan Beck and Igor Saldo. And I felt very, Personally upset about that. Uh, my brother was one of the officers responding on, on to that scene and that was the motivation for me to decide I'm gonna give this another shot and then become a police officer and I haven't looked back since
0: Excellent. What's been your biggest challenge? Um, getting into into uh, law enforcement and, and I guess following through on, on the actual career field. What's been your biggest challenge?
4: I would say it was confidence at the time, because as a young man, I, like I said, I grew up in a law enforcement family, and as a young man in my early 20s, I tried out, and it was a time when it was pretty competitive, and I didn't make the cut, I was pretty devastated, decided so to go to college, got an accounting job, was a credit manager for a local construction company, and then spent the next 13 years staring at computer screens and looking at blueprints, and as I got to be 40 years old, it was kind of one of those things where it's like, I'm not really getting any joy out of life. I needed something more and this was definitely filled that niche
0: awesome well good I'm glad you did it uh, all I think all of the first responders out there uh, all the guys in our field are always happy when we when we're able to draw that out of somebody and, and I think I think we all take great pride and I think we're at a, at a point in our industry or in our career field to where there's a lot of bad sentiment coming towards us but those of us who are doing the job i think we all stay, still take great pride so whenever we can pull somebody over to our side we we take you know a big prideful look at you i don't know
4: most don't definitely know. maybe not. all right jake yes sir
0: medical tell me about your favorite or um, most
3: intense medical training in the army uh we used to do live tissue labs so we had the opportunity to kind of deal with pigs and goats tell me about that tell me a little bit about it so they would take you know pigs and goats and we would deal with gunshot wounds or full abdominal eviscerations or amputations abdominal eviscerations can you explain that one so sure it's just essentially the innards of a human being or in that case a pig or a goat uh, being cut and then you having the you know the small or large intestine outside of the body and then you're just dealing with that issue so.
0: and so that and so you guys were practicing how to actually save that animal and keep it alive
3: throughout the, the process correct uh typically under you know what they deem to be combat operations so a lot of noise a lot of smoke typically from a prone position just trying to simulate what those combat medics are dealing with and experiencing over in iraq and afghanistan during the, the portions of what it is that we were doing as far as our military operations do you lean back on that type of
0: training uh, as, as you've gone along in your career? Obviously, in the army, but now that you're in law enforcement, do you still lean back on that type of mindset training?
3: I lean back more on the stress inducement and just trying to uh, manage your emotions. And the, our cadre down in San Antonio does such a fantastic job. They used to preach: if you can't control your voice, you can't control your hands. So to try to not scream and try to you know slow yourself down and just deal with the problem at hand. And kind of block out all the outside noise and the ancillary things that you're dealing with and just try to focus on saving your patient or trying to deal with whatever medical adjunct or intervention you're trying to put forth. Excellent. So
0: Dean, you, uh, you said you're a MACTAC instructor. Yes, sir. So explain a little bit about what's going on with that. What's uh, what does that mean?
2: First of all, you want me to try to follow that? Uh, You know what? (laughs) That's, that's where we're at. I'm I'm feeding you what I can. All right. So uh, a MacTac instructor. So, um, uh, years ago, I don't know if you want me to start from the beginning, but uh, we were asked to, by our department uh, to try to start a program uh, for a response to any uh, incident outside the ordinary of, of what we have as a usual police response, if you will. And It kind of came after Mumbai.
0: So so when you say Mumbai, you're talking about the incident Mumbai, in Mumbai, India? India, yes, sir. Multiple, multiple
2: attackers in multiple locations? Yes, sir. Okay, cool. So what did you all do to study that incident? so uh, some of our staff went over there obviously got as much information as they could came back to us and said this is what happened over there this is some of the information we got from it we need to develop some kind of uh, uh response to it to and mitigate the guys that you all sent over there or did they find a, a lot
0: of good uh, i guess partnership with the uh, agencies in in mumbai so
2: oh, i don't know how to quite say this they uh they came back and said that uh the uh response for it the Overconvergence convergence and things along that lines was something that we needed to work on here to make sure they compared that city to our city as far as uh, the entertainment part of it the, the the amount of people that were there for that kind of thing it relates to the city we have here in Las Vegas and how we could get our officers to respond a little better than how they did there as far as training and just getting them there so we started to put together this program um, we went and talked to uh, Los Angeles uh, city police, the county police, all those things. How do you guys do it? We took some from them. We took some from some other counties that we had talked to around here and really took a hard look at how our valley was divided up, um, other agencies here as well, like NHP, North Las Vegas, Henderson. How could we uh, mitigate overconvergence in here in the valley? So when we uh, looked at the response protocols, tried to put something in place with our area commands, the outside agencies, got that put together then we started looking at the training and how we had to make the training the exact same throughout the valley so when these outside agencies came into ours we were all on the same page with it you know everybody knew the same thing and that way we didn't have NHP showing up with their tactics and training maybe melding in with our guys if it wasn't the same then we'd have yeah, you know, kind of a messed up response. They, they, they wouldn't work together well. And we so the, want program, that.
0: so the program you came up with, is this something that you guys invented or is that something you adopted from a different agency?
2: You know, it's a little bit of everything. I wouldn't say that we actually just came up with it. I mean, they, these are tactics that we've looked at from the military, from outside other agencies. We just kind of developed what we thought would work best in this valley we hope that works for everybody else we've tried to make it as simple as possible for any size agency right you know with outside agencies as well cool that's great so what has
0: been the uh, biggest challenge or what has been the biggest obstacle that shows you that there's flaws in your training or have you found any flaws in your training did did you have you seen any obviously before the 10-1 incident were y'all noticing any trends that were different or were you pretty satisfied with
2: what you had set up I think we always find flaws in our training. We're always trying to, to make it better. Uh, the biggest thing was, was getting everybody on the same page. You know, everybody had their little specialties and tactics and everybody had their specialties in response or how they thought response would be, and it's just trying to get everybody together. You know, and then we talk about Rescue Task Force and how are we getting the, the fire department on board with it. You know, and that's, that was a whole other animal itself, just trying to get that under control or, or even getting us to, to talk together.
0: Right, so you know, I've had the, uh, I guess I've had the good fortune of being able to travel around the country and train in different uh, different locales, and everybody seems to have a hard time getting all the agencies back on the same page, all the, uh, just all the law enforcement agencies on the same page. So now that the uh, the trend seems to be inter, uh, I guess interagency training with fire department between fire and law enforcement, it seems to be a whole different obstacle to to face but we have a lot of agencies that are being very successful with it. The Las Vegas area has always held a great re- reputation for working, uh, working well with all the agencies around here. So what was the biggest, uh, obstacle y'all found Brian, uh, get together with uh, law enforcement?
5: Um, well, I'd say, uh, back to the that previous question that Dean was talking about, um, as far as kind of gaps in training, uh, prior to one October was We'd always kind of envisioned this response being kind of that man in the box that goes inside, shoots up a building, and then that's where all our patients are. And that's, that's where the scene is. This one, we had something that we hadn't encountered before was that elevated shooter, big open area, you know, no real confinement of the scene or the patients or the, you know, the casualties. So we're constantly having to look at ways to innovate and adapt to these changing circumstances and maybe things that we haven't even considered yet. Um, but as far as challenges with integration, um, your previous question, uh, you know, I think, I think we've done a really good job. I'm in this position now, and I've sort of followed in the steps of, uh, Mark Kittleson and Evan Hanna, guys that, that I think, you know, that, um, have done a lot of, of the groundwork. In this pretty much legendary in the area exactly yeah and uh and so we're just continuing those relationships that have already been built and my fire uh chief and fire administration has been really supportive of maintaining this position and making sure that we continue that momentum so they're fully committed to um having a person make to ensure that the relationships continue yeah i, I think that uh, kind of speaks well
0: across all uh, all jobs if somebody leaves you a good, uh, a good footsteps uh, to follow in that always helps out and those guys did a great job for y'all. So what has been the biggest uh, change in training now that y'all have integration training in place? Uh, what about you? How did you get included in all this? You're coming from the state,
3: uh, coming from the state, we had a, a, lieutenant from us, uh, now that works for parole and probation. Previously he was with the highway patrol. Um, he was very fortunate enough to make some really good, positive friendships and relationships with. Uh, Dean, Bert, and Bobby, the three you know, stakeholders from Metro mactac close to a decade ago, and then started to push forward with training for the Highway Patrol to be standardized. Because like Dean talked about, we didn't want to show up on scene and us zigging and them zagging, so to make sure that we were all on the same page. And then he kind of took me under his wing and was like, hey, come here, kid. I'm gonna bring you out here to, to some of the MACTAC training and took to it like a duck to water and started to come out and get involved and try and help out as much as I could. Like I had mentioned to these guys before, I'll, take the trash out or whatever you needed to, right? Just to kind of get my foot in the door and kind of see how the training was and start to integrate as much as we could. And from there, I took over the lead instructor role and then got uh, permanently attached to the task force 18 months ago. So it's just been one thing after another. And um, I think you're going to hear a reoccurring theme. I think it's, it's built more on relationships with individuals than it is with agencies. Um, We'll talk about it when we talk about 10-1, but like, the partnerships that are built and how it is that we're able to work so well together within this valley. Is it because of the patches or what agency does we work for? It's just based on personal relationships with the people who make those decisions. So it's, it's extremely important to kind of have that foundation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I think the, the strong will or desire to train, get better, make yourselves better, make the people around you better. I think that seems to be the, um, the, the bond that we all have together, uh, in our, in our groups, so y'all obviously exhibit that, Jake. I've known you for a little while, so I know that you uh, you have that. You've been one of our instructors for a little while. How long have you been uh, an adjunct for Alert?
3: Uh, I believe over two years. Okay, over cool. two years.
0: You learned a lot there, or do you, you, you think that you've learned more <clears throat> since you've been a part of us?
3: Oh, my God. So the wealth of knowledge that you have in your adjunct base is is it's unbelievable, right? You have everybody from every different background, whether it be from special forces to large metropolitan police agencies to large metropolitan fire agencies to smaller agencies and just what it is that we can learn from one another whether it comes to our method of instruction or what you can gain as far as information from how people do things in a rural setting like dean how did you do things in iowa and cap how do you do things here in las vegas it's unbelievable to have that opportunity to bounce ideas off one another and then to to learn from one another and that camaraderie Uh, being able to go out and fly to a remote location and be able to provide a level of service and education to folks that may not otherwise have the opportunity um it's really really cool
0: yeah absolutely so guys i'll start uh, i'll kind of start segueing into the uh, 10-1 incident and ask you a few questions as we go uh if i hit on the subject that maybe we, you don't want to talk about i don't mind just just let me know we'll figure we'll figure a way around it but uh travis tell me about where you go. What was your assignment? What was your, I guess, your job at that point during the 10-1 incident? And uh, more or less, what was going on for you that
4: morning or that day? That That's what's so chilling about it is I remember clearly my mindset. It was just another Sunday night. I, I was um, on the department only two years. I was, uh, you know, one of the newer guys working graveyard. Um, came on Sunday night. We were at briefing when everything went down. You started to get a... Sus- Suspicion that there's something going on um, you had sergeant's phones going off left and right people leaving the briefing room coming back and next thing you know it comes out over the air we have an active shooter at Mandalay Bay everyone's running out of the briefing room um, our location is just a couple miles away so we were all very close and that was as I'm in my patrol car and I'm pers- in route rolling code to the, to the scene and that, that's when I first started to really realize the, the size of the event we're dealing with and the absolute chaos of it there. When I get down, I was going down sunset to Las Vegas Boulevard and all of a sudden there's cars going every direction I had, And at one point I encountered a pickup truck flagging me down where the lady frantically waving me down, telling me she had multiple gunshot fatalities in the, or not fatality, but, um, victims in the bed of her pickup truck. Looking into the bed, and I'm just seeing bodies stacked on bodies, and then it it became to be very real to me that um, this is something more than I guess what you, as a law enforcement officer, when you hear active shooter, you, um, like the fire captain was saying, you're expecting somebody in you know in in a facility, one gunman shooting people, and then when I saw just the size and scope of it, I I realized that this is something that um, none of us could have possibly anticipated or even yeah, it's hard. It's hard to plan of.
0: for something that big. So Travis, you said you were uh, coming out of the briefing at that point. Give me an idea of how far you had to drive from where you were getting briefed to the incident.
4: I'm literally two miles away. Wow,
0: so that is right around the corner. Yeah,
4: yeah, we were just down the street.
0: So that truck that you just mentioned, that's one that I think we all heard about. We've heard stories about the uh, Route 91 shooting and people uh, actually jumping into action and, and doing what they had to do. I think the story behind that truck was something that somebody actually uh, figured out how to get the truck started and commandeered the vehicle. Is that the, is that the same truck we're talking about? It is about? not the same truck, but oh, okay. it,
4: was, it was many, or is one of many, many um, stories of heroism of just everyday people stepping above and beyond and saving their fellow man. Wow. It, it happened to be just a local family who was out at the venue, and they encountered a family in town from California who's, Daughter, a young lady in her early 20s, was struck and had severe arterial and nerve damage and was literally bleeding to death. They flagged this local family down, said they don't have no transportation, they don't know where they are go, and if they don't help them, their daughter's going to die. Loaded this whole family in their truck, took off, f- flying down Las Vegas Boulevard where they almost ran into me. And, you know, being a state trooper, when I first encounter them, I'm on my way to a major incident, adrenaline's up, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I got a drunk here. And it turns out, yeah, it was much more serious than that. So what um, did you
0: do with those guys?
4: <clears throat> I, I made the decision to immediately, um, escort them to the Valley's only level one trauma center that I knew of. So I, I got them, told them to stay on my tail. And I'm gonna get them to UMC trauma. And I'm gonna get them to help knowing that, um, their daughter was in a really bad shape and that's where it became very evident to me of we talked about it earlier off, off camera, of course, but how the smallest jobs in an event like this, where you get these guys who are, you know, are upset that they didn't get to be one of the assaulters, that you're, you, know, you have a state trooper and he's just sitting on a ramp, thinking you know, here a he, major incident, he wants to get in, he wants to end the, end the killing, he wants to save lives, and here he is sitting on a ramp. But I'm here to say that those are the jobs that saved hundreds of lives that night. We um, had a lieutenant make a decision to shut down um, the I-15 to all regular traffic, completely drain it off for emergency traffic only. And
0: the I-15, could you explain
5: how that it, runs? That,
4: that is a pretty much one of the busiest highways, at least on the Western United States. It is the major thoroughfare from Cal- Los Angeles to Las Vegas. Gotcha. It is the highway that runs right along Las Vegas Boulevard. It is a major highway. And uh, high Patrol, we had it shut down approximately 11 minutes covering the entire expanse of Las Vegas Boulevard, the whole strip corridor. And I experienced firsthand the difference between, even in an emergency vehicle, fighting my way through panic congestion, forced, literally forcing my way, splitting lanes and forcing people out of my way, trying to get this truck through this chaos to the point where we had it closed down and it was six lanes of open, empty um, travel lanes. Yeah, and so that's a that's a great and, description. Yeah, ambulances, and that was it. And I mean, it it, it cut critical minutes off, off of this. I think it's what what it would, in the end saved this young girl's life.
0: You yeah, know, I, I love the uh, the emotional description you're giving, Travis. so That's a uh, one of the things that we don't talk about, and we don't go into great detail. Or maybe I, I guess maybe I'm saying it to the right person, being that you're PIO now. But one of the things that we don't push out there enough is why we're actually doing those things in a big incident. We shut down roads, and we clear, that we clear them to all traffic except for first responder traffic going out there. And that's really the reason we're doing it. And like you're saying, those are life-saving measures that people just don't understand. So it's, it's good that you're pushing it out there. I appreciate that. Brian, how about you, man? What was your duty that
5: day? Sure. Um, I don't want to misrepresent my role in it. Uh, I tried to get a couple of people that had some really instrumental roles in the response, and it's, it's still hard for them to talk about it. Um, and so they were a little bit reluctant. Um, I was actually working at a station, station 66 out in mountain's edge. It's probably 10 miles off the strip. Um, my wife called me that night said, Hey, there's something going on at Mandalay Bay and, uh, pulled up the, the visit net, went out, got on my radio and heard the traffic and, and saw all the units assigned to it already. Uh, you know, we had probably 40% of the Valley's resources were already there. Um, or en route to it, uh, my firefighters come running in to the office. Hey, let's go. We got to get down there. And, uh, I'm like, we're like the only engine left in like 20 square miles. I don't know that we would do any more good, but if something else happens in this area, there's no one here at all to respond to to anything. And, uh, so, uh, pretty soon thereafter, we started picking up calls for service just in other stations, areas, uh, and just kind of manning the Southwest Valley. And uh, so we ran a couple calls, uh, treated people where we could. Uh, there weren't any available ambulances for transport, so, and we're on an engine, so we treated people as best we can and tried to just manage their expectations of, uh, we need to fix this problem here with you tonight uh, because you're probably not gonna make it to the hospital. And if you do, it's gonna be backed up by the time you get there. So. So we treated people as well as we could listen to the call and, uh, until about four o'clock in the morning. So spent about five hours, uh, just kind of monitoring the radio and, uh, and just bouncing from call to call.
0: So you said that we treated people where we could, as good as we could tell me about what y'all were doing to them, or what kind of injuries you were coming, you were encountering and what kind of treatments you were giving. So it,
5: this was just, uh, this wasn't related to the, the shootings. These were just medical complaints, uh, and people at home and, and they uh, diabetic problems, you know, we were given sugar. And we so you were, given you were still on treatments. standard response. Yes.
0: Oh, okay, yes. cool. And after, after, uh, I guess time downtown or t- time in the middle of the, uh, incident, did you, did your, uh, engine get deployed over to the uh, actual incident? No, we did not. Okay, cool. So you had to stay up basically handling the rest of the city. Excellent. Yes. Okay, yes. cool.
3: Um, Jake, where were you at that night? So at the time I was a uh, swing shift traffic ops. So Travis had mentioned, uh, typically we do a changeover um, at 2200 hours. So like we kind of go into the office and then Graves will come on at 2200 and then we have that two hour overlap where swings will go off duty at midnight. So for us from a manpower perspective, as far as the event when it took place, um, it couldn't have happened you know, at a more conducive time for the amount of manpower we had because we had all of Swing Shift that was on and then all of Graveyard was coming on. So I was at the office just like Travis was less than two miles away. Um, Calls started going out. Uh, Another trooper came running into the briefing room, was like, hey, you hear what's going on? And I'm like, no, what's going on? And he kind of let me in. So then with the proximity of where we were and kind of the staff that we had on duty that night, um, just based on training with these guys, I knew that there needed to be some type of representation in incident command. So you've got enough gun toters in this valley. You know, Las Vegas Metro is a massive law enforcement entity and with all the other partnering agencies. As far as gunfighters going in there we have enough as far as people that are going to be represented in incident command to kind of make the decisions to kind of make this event um, hopefully as successful as we could from a response characteristic that's kind of where i got lucky and went down to south central area command i kind of took a guess as far as where ic would be set up and then deployed from nhp southern command and went down to South central and then got in there and there was only a handful of folks and we started to devise a plan Mm -hmm. of kind of what we needed and what was happening and like the amount of calls that were coming in and still trying to garner information in those first 15, 20 minutes.
0: So when you checked in, you, did you check in with a, a command center or did you have, did, was there an incident command center set up yet?
3: No, no, no. So it was on the fly. So you, you had a couple of represents, uh, representatives from Metro that were down there that were starting to put the pieces together just based on proximity between, I mean, where we're at now at Mandalay Bay to South Central Area Command, it's a stone's throw away. Um, large front parking area that we utilize for staging, large rear parking area to be able to facilitate you know the parking of all the first responder vehicles there and as far as the proximity to to the event it was a, a pretty good location for for ic um went in there and travis had mentioned it earlier just trying to set up the the closure of the freeways and you know ingress and egress and i know that fema kind of dinged us on it as far as right. shutting shutting down the freeways um our response uh, and what we were thinking about wasn't non-uniform personnel or doctors or nurses but it was lights and sirens and getting people out of there as quickly as we could. Did you all know where the shooter was at that time? There were so many conflicting calls. Um, we had, the reports obviously was from an elevated position and then, but the amount of echo calls that we were receiving was, it was unbearable. I mean, several hundred echo calls in the first hour.
0: Can you explain echo calls? It's,
3: a, it's kind of a unique situation down here on the strip. So, sure, so you have you know over 20,000 people within the venue, shots fired, those people disperse. Um, they start to call 911 from the location it, where they're at. So, say for example, they were receiving shots fired within the venue, but then they go ahead and make it over to the Tropicana Hotel. They go ahead and call 911. Hey, listen, there's shots fired. Well, where are you? I'm at the Tropicana Hotel. So now the information gets put out. We have shots fired at the Tropicana Hotel, um, and that just continued to happen over and over and over again for, you know, several hours after the event. So it was very troublesome because we were deploying resources to go in there to deal with shooters that weren't actually there. Right. But it was based on information that we were receiving real time from people that were within the venue that were just trying to find a safe place to hide.
0: All right. So you were fixing to go out on your regular patrol shift and <clears> ended <throat> up sucked into the the
2: whole incident.
3: Yeah.
0: Dean,
2: how about you? Yes, sir. Well, it started off uh, kind of slow. Uh, actually, to keep it G-rated, wife and I were just getting ready to go to bed. we were going to watch a TV show, and uh, we were just laying down, and uh, my head what were you barely, watching? Uh, I, I wish I could tell you. I don't even remember. Some crazy show. Golden Girls. Yeah, probably Golden (laughs) Girls, some house hunting show that she likes to watch because, you know, I don't get to control that when uh, when we're there. So uh, uh, my head hadn't even hit the pillow. I was laying there and the phone started going off. So um, a friend of mine who had actually uh, was working overtime at one of the hospitals uh, said, hey, are you listening to the radio? Uh, No, actually, I'm laying here, but I'm like, yeah, okay. So I kick it on and start hearing the chaos that was going on. No sooner did that happen then than uh, my partners Bobby Chamberlain and Bert Hughes and and our sergeant at the time uh, Brandon Clarkson we started a text chain hey what's going on this is happening um, all right our uh, sergeant at the time was like hey I'm heading to the IC do your thing uh, I do want to give a shout out to my wife and the other dispatchers because I really um, I really don't think that they get the the credit that they deserve for what they do um, as soon as I jumped up out of bed and this is was, was A minute after these texts started I started throwing on clothes and she went right into this dispatch mode she started she uh, grabbed my radio and she's writing down notes and she's listening to everything so the minute it took me to throw my clothes on and get ready to go out the door she had actually handed me my radio and a sheet of paper that had information on it of everything that was going on suspect description as best they had it at that time where it was supposed to be from and all this stuff I mean it was it was right there for me as I, I ran out the door so uh, as we were heading in uh, um, so real quick is she a dispatcher with the same agency she is a dispatcher with Metro Police yeah
0: Sweet. how long has she been there
2: uh, she's been there let's see I've been on uh, 21 years she's been on there about 20 years wow that's great so she went right into that mode so you hit the road yep hit the road uh, heading in uh, of course texts are still going on and off and, and uh, uh, like smack I said uh, by the time I started hitting the 15 it was dead there was nothing on the road. And that's the first thing I thought was, holy crap, I bet NHP shut everything down so uh, these ambulances could get through. And I saw a few as we were going by. Uh, We all knew that uh, we were kind of behind the power curve as far as to get on those assault teams. But uh, we all knew that, hey, we needed to get where FD was gonna be, because we knew that that was gonna be the next wave coming. And we knew that we were kind of on the forefront of that because we were the ones that had trained the most on it. So we wanted to be there, we wanted to be part of that team. Uh, we grabbed our gear and we drove straight to on the Boulevard is where we were at we knew that's where uh, uh, the uh, CP if you will for rescue task force or medical is going to be set up uh, as we come flying into there and pulling up of course being all policies and procedures
0: absolutely <laughs> so re- before we go there so you said you all knew that's where the uh, incident command or the uh, we, we were hearing that's where
2: set. it was being set up the okay so they were already putting
0: that information out mm-hmm. okay,
2: cool. we were hearing that on the radio so we, uh, we come up to that uh, location, and uh, we jump out of the car, the, the truck that we have. And as soon as we got out, we saw Chief Castle standing there. It was the first guy that we saw. And uh, he literally uh, said, as soon as we got out, he goes, oh, thank God you guys are here. And I don't think that was a thank God you guys are here, you're going to save the day kind of thing. It was a, a comment of familiarity. He saw us. He knew, he knew who we were. We knew who he was. And uh, he was like, all right, now we're ready to go. And he told Traff right Bat, I've got guys ready for you because he knew why we were there. We, we, we knew we could get some rescue task force, so we, we could do something right now. So, Chief Castle, who is he? Uh, he was the fire chief for uh, Clark County Fire. Okay, cool. So, yeah. So, He has since retired, living the good life, I'm yeah. sure. He's, awesome.
0: He's doing a he's poor managing, job at
2: retirement.
5: Yeah, he's, 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 he's currently managing corona vaccine response in southern Nevada.
0: Oh, okay, great. So, you got there, and the fire guy
2: was actually happy to see you. Yep. Cool. Uh, they, uh, they were ready to go for us. Um, had an ambulance waiting for us, believe it or not, sitting right there. Uh, so we got out. Well, uh, we had talked about a little bit before uh, about some of the protocols that we had had put in place for uh, um, this rescue task force, having to have a captain there and all this stuff, some of the, the protocols in place to how we set it up and how we go. Well, we had run out of fire captains. They were busy doing a lot of stuff, but we had a firefighter sitting right there for us. He was ready to go with us. So uh, I linked up with him, and we were talking about how the route we were gonna go, this is what we're gonna do, we're gonna drive right down Las Vegas Boulevard and into Mandalay Bay and do our thing. And uh, over the, the years of, of this training, uh, we had heard from several officers that, man, are you sure the firemen are really gonna do this with us? Are they gonna go into that warm zone and blah, blah, blah? I'm here to tell you there, there was literally no hesitation The only question I got from this this firefighter that was leading their team was, hey, is there any way you could put someone up front of the ambulance with us with a rifle in case we take fire? And I said, absolutely. Bobby Chamberlain over here, my little angry Marine. uh, I said, yeah. I said, Bob, can you get up front? Bob goes, absolutely. He crawled up in the front of that ambulance and uh, uh, led us right down Las Vegas Boulevard and right into the parking, uh, the front parking here of uh, Mandalay Bay and uh was that something you all had practiced before or something you all threw together we threw together right then i mean we we knew what the the just was of rescue task force and how we we're going to do it but for getting from tropping the Vol- boulevard into uh uh the port cachet it's a fancy word i learned it's what it's called Fr- french right nice. uh there with the uh, ambulance um that was just we threw it together right then let's go he uh sat up front with them watching that front we put everyone else in there and i sat on the back of the ambulance and we drove down there and and right up into it uh we got out made a little uh, perimeter for us and then we pushed inside mandalay bay to clear that first floor that casino level awesome so about how yeah. long into the incident was this um we we're it was a while before we got the clearance to go in um i'd probably say what by about a half hour 40 40 minutes by the time it really got rolling for us to get in there there was probably. a little confusion the tropicana yeah well from some yeah so you were still so you were still inside the first hour. Yeah, okay. Before we okay. started rolling. Like, like Jake said, there was a lot of echo calls. And when we first got there and we were getting set up, um, we got a call that was someone was inside the Tropicana shooting. right? That's how the call came out. So right. We ran into the Tropicana and as we ran in there, everyone was just kind of walking around. We're like, oh, I think this is what it, it's coming out to be because everyone was pretty calm. Um, so as we were walking back out, another one said, no, no, they're inside here shooting again. So we walked back inside and we're like, no, this, this ain't it. So, uh, we actually had, um, I think it was a Capitol police officer. Um, uh, he was there with us, had, had run in with us. I asked him, I said, Hey, look, is there any way you could get to, uh, security surveillance and sit inside surveillance? And if you see something, be the one to call because there's. we're gonna get these echo calls and I want someone in there that's actually going to to physically be able to see this on camera and actually make some some good decisions whether it is or not
0: totally makes sense having a a one line of communication Mm -hmm. that's great
3: yeah that was Billy West is that who that was yeah Billy West was the one that was with you guys that ended up going into the surveillance room you guys
4: staying in touch with Billy West
3: I stay in touch with him yeah Travis and I do he works with us awesome great so yep he's a good dude
4: sweet yeah, I was thinking of those echo calls too. From after I cleared the ambulance and I was stationed on Las Vegas Boulevard, just south of the Welcome to Las Vegas sign, kind of in the shadow of Mandalay Bay. Listen on the radio. I'd say that was one of the greatest challenges of that night were those echo calls and the confusion. I didn't realize we had one shooter until I was hot washed at 8 a.m. the next morning. I was standing on Las Vegas Boulevard all night, for lack of a better term, puckered. Staring at these crowds of people coming down Las Vegas Boulevard and coming out of the alleyways of the shopping centers around me, where they're just visitors looking for somewhere to go because they can't get back to their rooms because of the chaos going on, and listening to these calls, I'm first thing thought I had being a MACTAC instructor was Mumbai. I'm like, this is a Mumbai playing out right on Las Vegas Boulevard, and I'm scanning everybody passing by I me, mean, looking for rifles, looking for anything that. I can perceive as a threat, and then come to find out next morning you know, we had one elevated shooter, and that that didn't get out to a lot of us on the ground, like I said, until the hot wash.
0: Excellent. So, Kit, let's talk about Kit. So, I know, I know um, a lot of us who know you, Jake, know there's a, a picture out there of you standing on the uh, on the actual boulevard out there, but let's talk about the kit that you guys were deploying with. You were a couple of years into your job, right? So. What was it that you deployed with that day, Travis? What what actual uh, gear? When we say kit, we talk about the gear that you wear or carry with you. What did you have with you out there? Were you a long rifle guy?
4: Yes. um, That is one of the great things about the Department of Public Safety is they issue all state troopers a patrol rifle with a red dot optic. So I did have my rifle, and then I had spent my own funds at the time um, on some rifle plates, and then I was issued a ballistic helmet. Um, the department has since then issued, I believe every state trooper, some ballistic plates, uh, as a re- uh, response to that event. But I was one of the few lucky ones where at the time I did have my own.
0: Excellent. Jake. So
4: <clears throat> like we preach all the
3: time, like, Hey, stay prepared, bring what you're going to bring to the fight. Right? So when I had initially arrived at South central area command, I had top of the line plate carrier, top of the line, team Wendy helmet, my rifle, everything ready to go get into incident command and then uh, worked that aspect as far as I see, and then went right out to staging. And then when I went out to staging right away to get deployed into one of the assault teams, left my plate carrier and my helmet in incident command and had to go retrieve it the next morning. But I brought it, but then didn't bring it, right? So in the heat of the moment, trying to get back out there and get deployed. Um, I had left everything in there along with my med bag. Um, I had a smaller med bag that I that I still had on my person. Um, and then went out and. Basically, it was just me and my rifle and the guys from Bolton Area Command that I got attached to. So,
0: those are uh, that's probably the worst feeling. Um, Shows show up somewhere and you don't have the gear, or you just had it and I don't know where I
3: put it. you yep. I know that's probably got to be the worst feeling. Tell me about it. Uh, it wasn't fun. Like it's you know you had everything pre-staged, and I think all of us are you know consider ourselves consummate professionals and have things ready to go in our car and at a moment's notice. And everyone thinks things are going to pop off and. You go there and trying to garner as much information from an incident commander's perspective to try to push out information to your to your troops yeah. and then have all your stuff and then all of a sudden your role changes in an instant like you're no longer in charge of the event as far as an ic component you're now a member of an assault team and then not have the tools that you would normally have if you would have just deployed the staging and then just went out as that assault element uh it was just more I don't know, embarrassing, I guess you could say, like, hey, man, why am I out here without my plates? Like, what's yeah. it, like what am I doing out here? Like, what's going on? Like, I should have these things, and... Rookie move. Yeah, like, you have mm-hmm. it, but then, like, you know what I'm saying, In the heat of the moment, you just left it, left it inside. So Happens to all of
0: us, man. Yeah. So, you said something about uh, possibly ending up as a member of an assault team. Did you end up
3: getting thrown on one of the assault teams? I did. So we had over 50 assault teams that were deployed that night. Um, for me, like I said before, the first, I guess, infancy of that event. Um, was in IC, and then the Lieutenant that Travis had mentioned, uh, Lieutenant Eric Kemmer, he came in, we phoned and woke him, and then he came in and relieved me in incident command. He took over command for the state, because um, obviously we're there to support Metro and to support fire and to have those heads of those agencies kind of working together to kind of fight this problem. So when he came in, I went out to staging, and then I was deployed into the 13th assault team with uh, some members from Bolden Area Command.
0: So when you say assault team what were y'all hitting what kind of targets were y'all hitting
3: we were dealing with the majority of the echo calls in the tropicana block of las vegas boulevard okay. so and they were coming out everywhere from bellagio to new york new york to the tropicana again um up and down the strip corridor hooters um reno and giles down by the church so it was just one after another after another and so in
0: that like in those deployments or in those in those calls Did you find yourselves having to breach any any, uh, structures or were you just showing up to the actual facilities?
3: So we were showing up to the majority of the facilities. And then for us, it was primarily entry level, so first floor of the hotel slash casinos. So we'd go in and, you know, clearing banks of slot machines is not something that a lot of us had ever trained before. um, But a threshold is a threshold, right? Whether it's a doorway or a bank of slot machines, you're just going to try and work that problem. So that's kind of what we were doing. And then like Dean said... We'd respond to the Bellagio, hey, shots fired. We'd go in there, there'd be people you know, running or jogging or whatever, but no active stimulus, no shots. And it would be like a stanchion got knocked over or someone dropped a glass or something like that and just trying to put the pieces back together. And that happened for a while. And then I don't know if it was a captain or a DC for Metro finally was like, hey, listen, like we're not gonna be responding to these until we have confirmed shots fired and did a really good job of trying to kind of mitigate that and kind of yep. sending us like, you know, a cat chasing its tail. So Yeah, that's
0: a varsity move right there because that's a, that's a tough call for a commander to make. But yeah, you have to make that call at some point. So did you all notice as you all were going up and down the strip responding to these uh, ghost calls or echo calls, did you guys notice that the rest of the strip was just functioning like it was, didn't did know what
3: was happening? Or does everybody seem to be aware of what was happening down at the Amandalay? Oh, no, everyone was aware because oh. the amount of people that were within that venue that dispersed, like that's all you were dealing with so it's not like you had an influx of just normal bystanders that were there that weren't aware of what was happening and then the amount of gunfire that came from that position in that short amount of time like everyone knew what was going on and then to see like I mean you can't walk past I mean Tropicana and Las Vegas Boulevard where Dean was was the main casualty collection point that we had so you're literally stepping over dead bodies in the intersection of Tropicana and Las Vegas Boulevard and to kind of put it in perspective there's more hotel rooms in that one block than there is in all of San Diego proper so it's It's a massive intersection that's extremely busy, and you're literally stepping over people that were just, you know, unfortunately shot, you know, 30 minutes ago. It's everyone knew what was going on.
0: So, I guess just to kind of explain for people that are watching or listening, uh, when we say casualty collection point, that's kind of a a place where you kind of call it an ad hoc uh, collection of uh, injured people or injuries that we've found on the street, injuries that we've found from the incident, and kind of bring them all to a certain place to where medical professionals can actually treat them. So when we say casualty collection point, that's what we're talking about. Did you guys all know
3: each other before the incident? I knew Dean, Burton, and Bobby prior to yep. the incident, just based on training. Based on the training part, um, I knew Greg Castle, Mark Kittleson. Obviously, Brandon Clarkson mentioned it before, um, but individually, you know, I had worked with Travis. Right. Had an opportunity to meet Cap yet? But I mean, Dean mentioned well, it when I when I was in incident command. I wasn't looking for another cop, I was looking for Brandon Clarkson. Like yep. I, I wasn't looking for another firefighter, I was looking for Mark Kittleson.
0: So, um, and, and the familiar face thing, the the, the warm and fuzzy is always, a, I guess, something we talk about, but I think it brings it back to the fact that we all, those that group is who you trained with. And I think that that's one of the things that we talk about a lot in our program, is we talk about spreading and, and kind of standardizing the training to make sure everybody has the same amount of training so we can be comfortable with grabbing the first guy that we saw. We know that you know we're comfortable with knowing that we trained them the right way. But I think that's one of the things that makes it so comfortable for us to find somebody that we knew. So you talked about setting up uh, RTFs and going right after it. So is RTF training
2: something that you all had been doing prior to that? So we had been doing that training for a while. We had called it Force Protection because we didn't know what like we were doing. We were just trying to get this together. Uh, so uh, we had done so a lot I'm of So I'm
0: sorry. You know, let me, I guess, in, in since since the podcast has opened up to everybody and we're trying to spread this out to the general public rtf being a rescue task force and a rescue task force is one of those it's a it's basically a group of people uh we're taking medics in with protection from law enforcement professionals so when we say a rescue task force that that's what we're talking about yeah so go ahead
2: go ahead from there sorry yes, i try we... i try to not to interrupt you too no, often no. no no that's fine uh yes we have been training it for a while where we had started roughly in about uh, 2012, 2011, 2012, to try to, to get these two agencies or disciplines together to, to do that training. Um, I don't know how much to go on that. Uh, a lot of our training was, uh, at first, was just trying to get the two, the two disciplines to agree on how we were gonna do it, and then getting uh, actual firemen to train with actual police officers and getting them working together. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It seems like that's been one of the, uh, the things that we've seen. I know uh, when we did it in, in my home agency and we've seen it across the country, we'll ask everybody, it's like, you know, you've been a, a cop for 20 years or you've been a firefighter for 30 years. How many times have you all actually trained together? And everybody responds the same. It's like, we never trained together. But yet all the incidents will have um, our, our incident command set up and we're firing and police set up all in the same place every single time. So it's kind of a, it's a cool uh, way to break the mold. So we need to start training together more often. Um, on the on the RTF training, did you get to be a part of that, Brian?
5: Yeah, I was in some of those original classes uh, back in 2012. So when you said, "Do, do we know these guys?" Um, I remember Dean. And when I bit into this unit uh, last year, I was like, "Oh man, I get to work with these guys now." I, they were, gave me that first class I took, you know, almost 10 years ago or whatever. So. Uh, Dean Burton Bobby I knew those guys you know as kind of these legendary figures here in the valley and when he talks about Chief Castle back then originally he was the battalion chief of training so they got to know him and at the time he was C1 of our department so you know the fire chief of a 600 or 800 person agency knowing first name a police officer of you know 4,000 plus or whatever department that's pretty amazing that you know those two levels, you know, rank levels, I guess, would know each other actually. You know, yeah, really us
2: being way down at the very bottom. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's amazing,
5: but uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, we did that original training, you know, back in 2012 or so, and then uh, you know we've kind of just tried to maintain as as well as we could. Obviously, it's it's hard to to maintain that momentum, and we're always fighting either attrition of losing the guys that know you know, all of these processes and or hiring new people that haven't had the training yet. So it's this constant uh, I refocusing.
2: Think, I think the biggest thing too wasn't just the, the getting out and doing the RTF training right away. It was uh, what we call a, like a PD-101 and a, an FD-101. Uh, we have trained at each other's academies on just the basic um we i've gone to their fire academies and and did a presentation where you know it's very basic as far as the you know you guys are out there on a a traffic accident and you see a police car drive by it's not us flipping you the bird and just driving by saying haha you you know we're not going to stop on this we actually have a traffic section that comes out and handles those accidents so it's not us you know just sloughing you off this is a reason why and bringing it down to a personal level for them so they start understanding why we do what we do, and vice versa, they come out and say, this is why we do things a certain way on our calls. So now the cops are, are, we're kind of personalizing each other's disciplines, and we explain to them, when you're on even the smallest call, go up and talk to that captain. If you're a sergeant, go up and talk to that captain. You know, there could be a reason why they're doing it a certain way, and usually it comes down to communication. You know, um, uh, barricade calls. Uh, we used to get a lot of uh, uh, complaints. Well, F.D. leaves. We'll explain to them. We're on a barricade call for a reason. The reason we want a rescue to stand by is there's a potential for someone to get shot. Can you explain a barricade call? Well, just where a, a suspect may have had someone hostage, or maybe it's, it's holding themselves hostage, and they might shoot out a window or step out and shoot at one of the officers, and has the potential for somebody to get injured, obviously, True. you know, gunshot. So we want to rescue standing by just for that incident. Um, FDs sometimes will, they'll be sitting there for a while and well, it's kind of a wasted resource. They're sitting there, they have no reason why. Of course, they want to get back to work. Well, officers get frustrated with that and sometimes the supervisors get frustrated. with well, why are they leaving? Well, this is why they're not getting any information when simply on that call, you can build that relationship by going up and telling them, hey, right away, this is why we want you to stand around. Okay, I get it. Then we'll go ahead and put this ambulance over here and we'll wait. Well, that's where you start fostering it. And then when we start teaching and training the uh, rescue task force part of it, it starts fostering more of that relationship, and they start understanding why we do what we do. Um, The biggest one was teaching our guys not to chase after the suspect. When you're assigned to that rescue task force element, that is your job for the day. No, it's not sexy. It's not the assault uh, assault team. You're not going to be the one chasing and going and getting the bad guy. You have to have the discipline to stay with that RTF element. And the fire department has to, uh, trust the fact that you are going to stay with them. Right. right? Yeah. You, you create that bond and you have to kind of stick by the mission mm-hmm. and it's
0: probably hard for cops in general to, to think, man, we're not going to go chase after that bang that was out there. So let me take you back to, uh, to the actual night of the incident. Y'all, uh, you threw uh, Bobby in the front seat Oh and, yeah. and y'all were getting after it. So tell me about your rescue task force. How many people was there and who was it or how many fire, how many <clears throat> cops?
2: Well, there were four firefighters. We had the four firefighters on that team with us. Uh, We ended up with Bert, uh, Bobby, myself. We ended up picking up one of our guys from our armor section who uh, hadn't been assigned to anything. He just happened to be right there, so we grabbed him up and put him in there with us. Uh, We were the initial team that that drove down there. When we got inside of Mandalay Bay, uh, somehow, and I'm not quite sure how this ended up, but we ended up picking up a sergeant. I can't remember what area command he was from. Uh, he just kind of showed up, and he was there with us, uh, and that was, that was basically our team. So you saw him, just grabbed there. him, and says, hey, we he, need you. He just happened to be there and just, hey, what are you guys doing? We're RTF1. We're, we're going to start clearing this floor. Okay. And then he was just with us. We're like, okay, cool. Awesome. So we pulled him up. Cool. Did you find a lot of uh,
0: victims in, inside the Mandalay?
2: Not inside Mandalay Bay. We, uh, we were wondering if we were going to, but it seemed like everything was out on that field. Okay, great. Did you all ever make it? Did your RTF ever make it onto the actual concert grounds? We did. uh, um, Not as that RTF1. We had ended up clearing all of the casino-level floor. Um, While we were there, uh, there was some more confusion on the radio. It was quite a hectic night. Uh, After about an hour and a half of us being inside there, maybe two hours uh, being on that casino floor, clearing it, uh, a couple of the theaters, um, there was a call coming from the field of some uh, the officers that were out there that needed to be relieved off of there for uh, a couple of various reasons. Sure. So uh, our sergeant was in the IC himself, and he had taken a couple phone calls from that field, the people that were in charge out on that field. And uh, he actually called us on the phone and said, hey, look, I need you guys to go out and relieve them off that field. Can you do it for us? So we said, yeah, absolutely, Sarge. What do you need us to do? And he told us where to go. So we went out there and relieved some of the officers off that field. And then we ended up staying uh, uh, about eight hours, yeah uh, over the bodies.
0: So I, I guess that was going to be my next question is that at that point, we had already cleared out all of the, uh, people who were, who were left uninjured and there were still bodies still laying all over the field.
5: Yes,
2: sir. Wow.
0: That's a tough sight. That's a tough sight to deal with. I mean, most people don't, uh, I guess people don't think about that being one of the sites that we deal with in American law enforcement. You hear about stories like that coming from overseas from the war, but there's very few stories that we hear about where an incident like this actually occurs and you're standing over bodies for an extended period of time. Travis, you were talking about that first, that truck that you ended up stopping. Um, you were talking to me, you said that there was blood. You could see the, 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 bloody people in the back of that truck. Yes. Tell me about that. Tell me about you know, what happened there. What was your feelings going on to, into that?
4: D- that was the first time where, um, it was something I was completely not expecting. Kind of kind of threw me off my oodle loop a little bit, but immediately I reacted and knew I had to do something for them. And it turns out, you know, the majority of the blood was coming from the young lady with uh, arterial bleed where her father had done what he can with a makeshift tourniquet made out of his belt, but it wasn't getting the job done.
0: What kind of medical training had you had before that?
4: I've had basic, you know, first aid CPR through the department. All right. Um, yeah, my, my medical training is, I'm pretty minimal as far as that goes. I I can apply tourniquets. I, you know, I provide CPR and you know, very, very basic things. Yeah, absolutely. So so so. I figured the best thing I can do is utilize my emergency lights and get them where they needed to be, where someone who better trained than myself will be much more assistance to them. But I'd also like to talk about what we were just kind of discussing, like with the concert grounds, I had an encounter of one of the deceased that I found something just something that most people would never consider, but we had one, one of the deceased, uh, Denise Perdidas, who I encountered that night. She, she had been shot in the head, and she was literally spent the night wrapped in a sheet with her husband clutching onto her in the back of another pickup truck. And these poor people, the, the pickup truck wasn't related to them, but picked. her husband had her with them. They put him in the back of the truck, and they're trying to find help for her. They actually stopped out with a par- paramedic ambulance, and they couldn't do anything with Denise because other than Tagger, she was deceased and they had to save their bus for the people who needed, they could help. And so the, this poor pickup truck is literally driving around Las Vegas with the remains of the, one of the victims trying to find somewhere to put her and they ended up on my scene. And it was another example too of law enforcement coming together, which blew my mind was they were led to my scene by a sergeant with the Arizona highway patrol. Who just happened to be in town for a uh, convention or something, and he encountered them on the I-15 and brought and then saw my lights and brought them to me. And he he did did a great job because I had to stay on my post, and he actually led them to another closer local hospital. So, you know something, you know that Denise can be taken out of this truck and you know treated with a little more respect than driving around the back of a pickup truck with her. And that was one of the moments, though, as a police officer, that I felt the most helpless is that's one of those things where I'm staring at this poor man clutching onto his wife and yeah. he's looking up at me and, and I'm dumbfounded. I don't, I don't know what to say to him. What am I going to tell him?
0: Yeah. I think that's one of the things that people don't talk about or maybe the conversations are just starting to open up to talk about that. There's a lot of incidents in our career path where we end up, uh, I guess with that feeling of helplessness because we're just unable to help. Sometimes it's because of the, the, uh, the whole size of the incident we're dealing with. Sometimes it's because of the training that we have or have not done. But there's a, there's a lot of those incidents that come into play. Jake, at one point, you and me were talking off um, offline, and we were talking about what you saw or what was going on in the actual hospitals. Did you ever make it over to the hospitals afterwards? You got I know you got to talk to a lot of people in the hospitals from afterwards. Can you talk about that? Yeah,
3: sure. Just, that night, didn't make it over to the hospital. I made it over to UMC the following day. Right. Um, also made it over to Sunrise the following day. And uh, just through conversations with the folks that were over there that were trying to help triage outside and then obviously the, the nurses and the amazing medical professionals we have here in town that were doing that work. Like there was, you know, literally, you know, blood up to some of their ankles. Like there was just so much blood that was coming in from all the gunshot wounds and the gunshot victims that were arriving there and people trying to do the best that they could and with the concert and how it took place with the amount of off duty first responders and, you know, off duty military personnel trying to utilize, you know, improvised tourniquets and some type of bleeding control as best they could. There were still too many holes to try and plug, and there wasn't enough belts and improvised tourniquets for them to utilize prior to them being transported. So now you have all of these people being transported primarily in non-traditional means, showing up to these hospitals with it not having the available resources to treat, and then you have all of that blood just being you know spilled on the floor right there in the entryways and the initial you know entry ports of UMC and our medical treatment facilities here in town. So. It's pretty crazy to think about like that many victims, you know, over 400 gunshot victims in that short amount of time, being transported unaccounted for for the majority of them, because as Travis mentioned, they're just getting into any vehicle they can—Uber, pickup truck. Uh, we had LE personnel that were transported. We had fire personnel that were transporting our, you know, private partners with our medical team. They were transporting, and just to have them showing up—it it, was—it was a pretty crazy scene.
0: So you had talked about that. You had told me about the, uh, I guess the depth of the blood at that point. And just to hear that story, I can't imagine it. I really can't imagine being inside of a hospital standing in blood that's that deep. And it's just crazy to hear. So you think about what was going on in those people's heads, you know, you're, you're constantly working. And granted, they're solid professionals and they're gonna keep doing their job. But that's just one of those things that's kind of tough to cope with afterwards. So lots of training, lots of dealing with ghost calls, echo calls, uh, responding to all those things. So, Brian, I want to uh, ask you, so at the beginning, Travis talked about leading that truck over to the the level one uh, trauma center that we have here. So you guys on the fire side, you guys know this better than anybody else, and we really don't get that training on the police side very often until we started doing more RTF training. But what's the biggest problem with somebody like Travis taking them over there, um, him just deciding where we're
5: going to go to? Well, you know, he did a great job of, Going to the appropriate facility for something like this level one trauma you know is the way to go but number one is just knowing the capabilities of the hospital system that you work in and which hospital would be the appropriate destination and number two is not giving them that advanced warning that patients are going to be coming in so we you know through the the medical branch we have that transportation group supervisor that we would assign as part of our ics protocol and reach out to area hospitals determine the number of beds, what their capabilities are, how many patients they could take, what the degree of severity of each one of those patients. Um, you know, so we try to give them that heads up of this is what's happening, this is what's gonna be coming. And, um, and then the other thing that we do now, you know, as a result of this incident, is we, we uh, staff hospitals with engine companies to help do that triage outside. So we, we have a hospital surge area command now that we'll put a battalion chief over have him assign resources to the hospitals and just help, uh, triage and, and treat patients and and make sure that people are getting to their appropriate destinations when they do show up in private vehicles or, you know, another responder or something like that, uh, to make sure that they're in the right place. Yeah. So that's a big problem. That's
0: something that I learned when we started doing these, these types of trainings and sending them out there. It's like, that's the biggest problem where we'll overload a hospital's capability. And I think all of us on the streets just automatically think, I'll just take or lead somebody over to whichever facility. That's one of the things that you guys in the fire service do. You'll you'll actually phone ahead and let them know, hey, this is what I've got coming. And I guess in San Antonio, what they'll do is they'll actually talk to the dispatch center and figure out which uh, center to take them to. So that's kind of one thing that nobody out there really realizes except for you guys.
5: Yeah, we, uh, you know, we teach that a little bit in the street-level RTF class that we do uh, where we're really trying to pair up. Sergeants and captains in that initial response to start developing a unified command and some shared objectives and common operating picture between the two agencies. And then, um, and then really push, uh, RTF to those transport areas in, in ambulance transport, because, you know, after action, Aurora, Colorado is police will load up patients and transport them. I think there was 27 transported in that incident, but they're ending up at all sorts of different facilities so you guys have have told me a
0: little bit about doing uh briefings afterwards you said y'all you started doing um briefings to different organizations talking about the actual uh the 10-1 incident when you guys started that how long was that after the actual incident before you all gave the first briefing
3: dean
2: well i think that uh when our emergency management started pushing out the uh the first ones i think it was probably about six seven months afterwards when they first started doing them i think uh, i took a trip to new york probably about eight months afterwards when they started pushing them out to us to do them it was who, fairly quickly who was the uh, host or who were y'all pushing that out to uh, there were all kinds of different agencies I know I did one for their uh, New York State emergency management uh, big training facility they had up north there uh, been to a bunch of them yep. I wish I could tell you all of my I, I can't remember it's been a while but start
0: repeating the story over and over I know that we've talked about the story several <laughs> times So once y'all started doing that, tell me about it, man. Do you feel like you go back there every time y'all talk about this? I know you, we've talked about it. I know Travis, you you talk very emotionally about it. Do y'all go back to that same place? Are you able to kind of debrief it afterwards?
3: It's, I mean, you go back to it a little bit. You just try and allow people to learn from what it is that we went through, right? So like we're very prideful and proud of how we operate here in the Las Vegas Valley and a lot of the questions that we get, Dean mentioned it earlier is, well, how are you guys able to come together as LE and fire? Like, how are you able to deal with that massive problem that night? And to do those debriefs, whether it be in a civilian setting, because like, you have civilian entities that want that information as well, to LE and fire entities, um, to have the opportunity to kind of, not teach, but just, you know, discuss and have conversations about what took place that night and what it is that we did and what we could have done better and what it is that we think we did quite well. Um, is always a benefit but you're obviously gonna relive it. Like when you have service members that deploy to Iraq or Afghanistan and they deal with combat, the benefit is they get to come home. They don't have to deal with that scene anymore. Like we're sitting within Mandalay Bay right now and we on every day have to drive by the scene of the most horrific, horrific act of shooting event our country's ever seen and we have to relive it day after day after day living here. It's just a part of you know, what it is that we do. So anytime you kinda talk about it or teach about it, it's not that you're numb but like we live here and we deal with it and like we signed up for it. So you just try and push out as much quality information as we can to partnering agencies and yeah, absolutely. And I
0: think that's one of the things that people don't uh, talk about enough is that at a certain point in your first responders career, I think at a certain point you do become numb, you become numb because you see the same types of things over and over again. It's very traumatic events. Every event we go to is a traumatic event to somebody and you do, you become emotionally numb to a lot of stuff out there. So in the aftermath, was there any type of resiliency training that you guys had to go to or any kind of recovery training or counseling that you guys
2: talked we, about? We had our, our peep had called us and talked to us if we wanted to talk about our police em, employee assistance program and things like that. Uh, I had friends to talk to. Uh, the one nice thing that, that was very fortunate for me, uh, not only that I had a, a wife that's involved in this kind of line of work, which was real good, you know, because she can understand it as well, but uh, I literally uh, work with my two best friends we've been together for 20 years same squads most times so you know we we hit each other up all the time and that's that's what really really helped us you know we we give each other a good ration of, of shit if you will about the mistakes we do and the things like that so to have that and bounce it off each other was really good for for us yeah absolutely it, it helped me out uh, quite a bit you know and, and I think uh, the biggest thing not not so much even seeing uh, all the bodies laying there and having to uh, he talked about the, the guy holding him uh, his wife we were uh, sitting across from where a man was holding his his pregnant wife who had died uh, we had a lady that was in a uh, wheelbarrow that had died and then several others that were all around it you know th- those were all around us we had to, to sit and watch that it was it. that wasn't so much what was getting to me because uh, being a police officer as many years as we have and seeing as much tragedy as we had seen you know you kind of compartmentalize that that it is what it is now right right the thing that stuck with me the most was hearing everybody's cell phone going off because at a certain part of that night it was dead quiet and being in Las Vegas it's never that quiet on the strip ever never that dead quiet and it really was and you could hear cell phones all night long ringing or dinging text noises you know that was kind of the eeriest thing i think i've ever heard is just knowing that no one was going to answer those yes and that was just kind of weird for me so you're talking about the actual uh, victims cell phones going off yeah victims yeah. And, and people and just
4: As news the, started to get out people checking on loved ones yeah
2: and boots people running out of there there were boots everywhere boots cowboy hats just you know people ran out of their boots and and just to see that stuff there and, God.
0: yeah i saw those wow. pictures when when they started talking about the contra, i saw those pictures of just shoes laying around on on the contract where people were running right out of them
2: yeah
3: it's pretty moving each agency kind of did their own thing so we had to go through kind of like the same process you would after in ois so our agency kind of treated it as a critical event and and that's an officer involved shooting an officer involved shooting okay. so there were six of us i believe travis yes. uh, we, we all had to go see the psychologist and then uh debrief with with him and then kind of talk about the event and then kind of go through those protocols and then get back to work um our major at the time did a pretty good a very good job um of trying to hey guys you're not coming back to work like we had all worked that event didn't get relieved um like dean and bobby had mentioned till you know early hours of the morning and then we were all back on shift i was back on shift at 1400 because every you know all hands on deck and then my major was like oh no no you're good like you're gonna go home and decompress and kind of go see the shrink and kind of work through that process and didn't allow some of us that were down there um, you know in and around close proximity to the fairgrounds to come back to work right away so
0: that's a that's very uncommon it's very uncommon for uh, those stories to actually happen um, did you find those protocols actually useful to you do y'all you do you all actually go back and talk about that
3: afterwards I've talked about it I was uh, to say I was Mildly upset would be an egregious understatement that yeah. he didn't allow me to come back to work um, You've got every other police officer firefighter You know EMT in the valley working that day trying to you know work through this problem And then here I am getting told I have to go sit on a couch and sure. talk to somebody I don't want to talk to about feelings or whatever and it's yeah. just like no, that's not what I want to do I want to go help out and go well, do something was, Yeah, I think that's
0: the call from the from most of us. We want to get back in the game and get after it um, and also, but most of us will take the tough guy road and, and kind of uh say so we really don't need to do that right now. totally understandable. what were you gonna, Brian, you had something
5: yeah, uh our department brought everyone into the training center that had worked that event that night uh for kind of a critical incident stress debrief, so even these guys that had been up all night long dealing with the aftermath of this, they brought everybody in at relief uh zero eight hundred and just you know quick rundown of. Hey, that was an extraordinary event. Hope everyone's doing okay, and just kind of had everybody talk through it a little bit. Um, I know I, since I worked at kind of an off-strip station, um, they they did send a bunch of people home, and I ended up working that next day to cover somebody that you know would have been working that second forty-eight. And then, uh, you know, the hardest part for me at the end of that was knowing that I hadn't responded to it and then seeing all of my friends that had were affected by it and you almost develop this like survivor's guilt almost of not being available for that call and and being there and seeing the guys that are younger or newer to the job or just haven't developed the resiliency that you have of 15 years of seeing people messed up you know in every way imaginable and maybe not equipped you know I, I think I'm Probably at this point, I'm as messed up as I'm going to be, you know, and they can't send anything else my way, you know, but, uh, you know, and just seeing your friends go through that struggle is, is really hard
3: that, uh, I'll touch on that real quick. So Travis mentioned it earlier. So we had had some colleagues of ours that, you know, very explicitly stated afterwards that they were like, Hey, they had the guilt of I'm only working a ramp. Like I'm only, I had nothing to do with the event. I was just on traffic. And then we had to have command go in and speak to them and be like, listen, like you holding a traffic post allowed eight ambulances to get from point of injury to, you know, to UMC trauma, you know, saving those people's lives, right? Like you may not have put the tourniquet on, you may not have done the medical interventions, but what it is that you did holding that ramp absolutely saved lives. So it helped to kind of work through that. But we had a lot of folks that were kind of in that same boat. Like, hey, I did not respond or I was off duty or whatever the case may be. And um, there was like a level of guilt or... You know that they weren't able to get involved as much as they you know wanted to and have trained for and to see their partners kind of go through that was was pretty hard for a lot of folks
0: yeah absolutely That's a that's a tough thing so training was a big has always been a big thing for you guys I know that the Las Vegas area has been real big in training so how have you all changed up your training procedures or your prep for these types of events
2: so a lot of things that we've done we get with these hotel casinos quite a bit we have uh Uh, protocols we put in place with them as far as uh, go bags pathfinder program that we put together with them that we're working on can you explain the go bags what you're talking about so um, part of our go bags uh, we have them in every hotel casino they uh, have things like keys access cards things to everything so we can get into anything you know as well as I do Murphy's law says that a bad guy can get into a spot and (laughs) for some reason we won't be able to get in that spot so we have access to everything in there uh, they have maps of in inside the facilities nothing real technical just an overlay so we can't have an idea of where we're going if someone calls out a room or, or a, an area of that hotel casino we know how to get to it or have a, a general layout of it um, a list of hazards that are inside there uh, nothing small like little cabinets full of stuff but big hazards that we need to know about I joke around a lot and it's kind of like the hunt for red October I need to know where things are inside there that don't react well to bullets that's what we want to put on these these uh, go bags uh, we like to let um, uh, some of the uh, outside uh, security guards have access to things like that so as we arrive our officers can mm-hmm. grab those and have comms inside the, the hotel casino to get there uh, communications is delayed all the time you know it's got to go from them to our dispatch back out to us and that takes time well if we have direct communication with them it's it's easier for us quicker that's what we're looking at things like that that's part of the go bags that we're looking at so
0: comms is definitely a problem i guess around the world comms is, is one of those problems that's hard to tackle and for anybody's ever stayed in any kind of a hotel uh anywhere especially these very big high-rise hotels your your cell phone signal will disappear at most places well pub- general public doesn't realize that the same thing happens to our uh, first responder radios that are high dollar radios so we have problems with comms inside of hotels so you all have something set up you know you're trying to get around that problem that's a that's a that's a big deal but you talked about um dispatchers and their level of professionalism and their ability we all know that think kind of to throw them in the rivalry with uh, cops and firefighters we all have the rivalry with dispatch um, and we have to tread lightly on that one of course but who dispatched in, in that type of an incident like what you all were doing on on uh 10-1 everybody Everybody was on it.
3: So we have shared channels here within the Las Vegas Valley that we're still trying to work through the process of how we're going to implement that in the infancy of an event, but you're going to have Clark County fire working their dispatch, Las Vegas metropolitan police working their dispatch, especially when you have an event channel. And then obviously your area command channels, the highway patrol, we were working off our channels. So it can get very convoluted and kind of messy. um, But you're all getting, quality information. So when you have integrated teams, you can share that information back and forth. Just sometimes, like Dean mentioned, it gets delayed. So Highway Patrol may have gotten a very pertinent piece of information. Well, instead of going from officer to trooper, and it has to go from trooper to dispatch, dispatch to dispatch, dispatch to officer. So there's that delay, which is unfortunate sometimes. Uh, but when you work with encrypted channels, it's just something that you kind of have to work around until you're all on the, sh- the same shared comms. So okay. it's.
0: What's the big changes that you've seen in the uh, fireside training,
5: uh, Brian? Um, you know, I think I don't know about changes. I think it's just having to continually do it, have it be a point of emphasis because everyone has their annual stuff that they have to hit. It, you know, and how do you carve out time when you have all of these certifications and requirements to to have a certain amount of training in you know this category or that, you know but then still make time for the other things that are important. And if if you're going to make it an annual refresher, you know, that has to be on the calendar for the annual block or, or something like that. So it's just, you know, we're constantly getting new guys in that haven't had this over years, you know, and and we just did a survey. Uh, 40% of our guys have never had any RTF training. And this was only, you know, three and a half years ago, but we're a young department and we're constantly getting younger. You know, our company officers are promoting, you know, young and, and So it's just trying to carve out that time to just continue to hit these, the basics, you know, and just push forward with that.
3: I think one of the biggest changes you'll see Eddie and I don't want to speak for fire, but like they're present every day. Yeah. Like in our office, you're going to see a fire captain every single day. You're going to see Captain Eric Jones from City Fire every day. Uh, we would see him more if we could, right? Just because he's such an amazing asset. Um, but you see those captains, from those representatives, from those from our fire agencies. You can talk about it all you want. But when they're present every day and they're hands-on, ingrained in training with both LE and firefighters, that's been the biggest change since after 10-1. Like we trained consistently prior to 10-1, but now we consistently have a fire captain in our office every single day, hands-on with our cops. Um, it it brings relevancy and credence to what it is that we're preaching as far as that multi-agency, you know, multi-discipline response to an active assailant. So they're there every day now, and that's a credit to their Commanders, right? You talk about your deputy chiefs and your chiefs that are allowing captains to be in those spots full time and just what an amazing asset that is. You can't put a dollar amount on that. Like to have Captain O'Neill there, to have Captain Eric Jones be there full time, the decision should never be based on dollars and cents. It should be based on what it is that we can do as far as the service to the constituents of the state of Nevada and the people that are responding here to this valley and to have those stakeholders from those agencies be there every day. That's something that's been a benefit after the 10-1 event. Mm
0: Yeah, so the participation and and, uh actually like you said the presence more than anything else so brian i'm going to give you the chance to do this i know you asked me um to let eric come up here and you 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 said that he should be up here and and have the chance to actually say something about what was going on tell me why before we bring him up i'm going to let you bring him up
5: yeah sure uh captain eric jones lvfr come on up here buddy so uh you know i'm a new member you know to the mac tech task force and and so a lot of the things that happened during this time and before you know as we talk about this kind of implemented in 2012 moving forward he was there for a lot of that as like a guy that was sitting in, in my seat you know prior to me so
0: awesome absolutely Eric all right so I'm gonna let you all switch out if you can just just go ahead and set your headset down and he'll take over your spot Eric I appreciate you uh, Patiently waiting, hanging out, we wanted to get you in here. Um, tell us a little bit about you.
6: Uh, my name is Eric Jones. Uh, I've been with Las Vegas Fire and Rescue for uh, nineteen, a little over nineteen years. Uh, I've been running nine hundred and eleven calls for a little over thirty-one years. Uh, I served in uh, the Army. I was a firefighter in the Army, of fifty-one Mike. Uh, did that in Fort Wainwright, Alaska, and uh, Fairbanks. So, Arctic firefighting is a lot of fun. <laughs> wow. Uh, before that, I was in Los Angeles, uh, worked for a private MS company uh, as an EMT and a paramedic as well. So,
0: so medical was your was your pursuit. You liked medical, yes, sir. So tell me about your involvement. Uh, tell me about what was going on with you in your life during the night of the 10-1 incident.
6: So I actually wasn't on duty that night. Okay. Uh, so uh, my dad actually called me and told me about it, and then uh, I started watching it on the news and make phone calls and. Talk to some folks that, uh, I could about what was going on. So
0: your big involvement in this group here, and, and it's a pretty big group, but your big involvement here has a lot to do with the training side, right? Yes, sir. So tell me a little bit about the training and, and what part you take in it and, and I guess how you've changed things up.
6: So, uh, I've been working with, uh, the MACTAC section, uh, Bobby, Dean, and Bert, um, since probably about 2012, um, I did a lot of that, uh, because I saw the need for it. Uh, on our side, uh, the County uh, was a little quicker to jump on board with the Mac Tech program as far as uh, integrating their folks uh, to it. Um, so for our agency, uh, there was a few of us that took interest as well, but we kind of had to do it uh, on our own time, uh, which wasn't a big deal. We were happy to do that. So I was able to be part of the, uh, the group that developed the, RTF program uh, with Dean and and Bobby and and Bert and uh, all the agencies across the valley. Uh, So that was a big part of where I got my start in it. And then from there, uh, obviously uh, continued with the training piece, uh, getting involved with drills, setting up drills, um, learning the program, uh, learning the policy, being a part of that policy uh, work group, um, and just going from there. And then eventually, we our agency uh, put forth a, a position, law enforcement liaison officer position. I was chosen for that, and I did that for about 11 months. Uh, working with MACTAC, I was assigned to MACTAC. Um, and we just we hit it hard doing training for uh, the entire Valley with all the fire and, and police agencies. Awesome. <laughs> so what have you changed
0: personally since that, since that night, since that 10-1 incident, now, granted, you weren't out there with them, but what have you changed personally about whether it's the kit you carry or how you're training um, yourself on a personal basis? What, do you, what have you done differently now?
6: So I still carry the same kit, uh, the same tools. Um, again, being involved in this so long, we, we trained in, uh, as Brian said, uh, uh, the box scenario. Uh, so our tools are the same, but my mindset has changed as far as what could be the problem and what could happen.
0: What's your basic loadout on a Mm -hmm. day-to-day?
6: Being on the fire engine, we have uh, advanced life support equipment. So I only carry an extra tourniquet personally, um, but otherwise it's uh, the same gear that we would on any of our other vehicles.
0: So have you guys taken any steps, uh, especially on the fire side, have y'all done anything um, special to start training families? Like have y'all spent more time training your family at home spending more time doing drills with, uh, with your kids or with your family?
6: So uh, I had a company for a little while where I trained law enforcement officers in tactical medicine or patrol medicine. Uh, and my family was involved with that. So I did quite a bit of training with them. Uh, and then they were incorporated in that uh, training of law enforcement officers.
0: Awesome.
3: I'd have, I'd have conversations with my, both my boys, they're eight and six or about to be eight and six and they both know how to apply cat tourniquets. And I'd have conversations with both of their instructors, right? Because if one goes to kindergarten, the other's in second grade, about why they have tourniquets in their backpacks. And they have ballistic backpacks, right? So, like, so those are things that. Just like
0: all the other kids? Not like, not (laughs) like, not not, not like, (laughs) not like like all the other (laughs) kids, right?
3: So, but it started off as a game, obviously. And, you know, hey, can you tie this, you know, around daddy's leg? And then kind of working through, like, how to work the windlass and how to apply a tourniquet properly. And, it's kind of speaks to where we are as a society that it's kind of tragic. You have to teach a six year old how to apply a tourniquet. Um, It's not something that you would ever envision wanting to have to do as a father, Um, but to have those conversations about what happens if a bad person comes into your classroom, like what do you do? And, you know, how do you go ahead and stop a a leg bleed or how do you do that? Like it's things that, you know, you have to have those open levels of conversation, especially with educators. Um, You know, you hear stories obviously of Sandy Hook and know what options children do have especially at that age and if i'm gonna allow you to you know look over my children's well-being for those seven eight hours a day i want to make sure that you know we're capable enough to go ahead and teach them how to save lives or or get out of there as quickly as they can rather than you know kind of hide in a corner or hide under a desk and and wait to be executed so it's it's unfortunate you have to have those talks with children of that age but if it helps save a life then it is what it is
0: yeah no absolutely and i think we uh we as the first responders and as the uh, parents, you know, the leaders of your family, you guys have to kind of take steps to do that. We do that. I know my kids can. My kids can do tourniquet drills. They do shoot and move drills. They do cover and uh, cover and move drills. They're great at that kind of stuff. But it doesn't just apply to a to a mass casualty incident. This is something that could happen when you're out hunting. Yep. This is something that can happen when you're uh, in a ball game or anything else. Yep. So having basic um, life-saving skills, it's one of those confidence builders for everybody um i think the it's the stand the, the thing that happens with all groups like ours is everybody has a standard you know i have my standard um all of us, all of you guys have a standard and it's obviously you all keep them pretty high so they all came from somewhere so i'm gonna kind of lead us off uh kind of off of the subject and kind of lead us back to back around to casey's area so we can hand it off to him here pretty soon but they, so tell me a little bit about dean tell me who would you call um who would the guys be or the people be on your personal Mount Rushmore? Who brought you here? Who got you to
2: this point? Well, there's a couple of people, I guess. Uh, as far as where I'm at today, um, my grandfather was probably a big one. He was one that, that uh, I always looked up to. He served in World War II and, and uh, <laughs> down-to-earth Italian guy. He, uh, won the Silver Star in uh, World War II, saving some people in a tank running across a field getting shot. I got hit and shot in, in World War II. And then uh, came back and was working in a field and a guy had shot and killed a cop. And, and uh, as my grandpa was working in a field, he uh, guy held a gun to his head and said, you're taking me somewhere. And got in a truck with my grandpa and as we were driving up the field or up the, the road, grandpa was like, no, you're not. And got in a fight with him, shot my grandpa in the head. He lived through that. That was when I was one. Uh, he lived through that. And, then when I became a cop, I mean, he, my grandfather grew me up. He taught me everything. And I remember I told him, I said, Grandpa, I'm going to be a cop. He goes, look at me, Dean. He says, don't you go out there being no damn hero. He says, don't get shot. It don't feel good. I said, well, <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Don't. He's actually uh, a subject matter expert. Yeah, yeah. He, he was pretty good. Uh, um, one of my first uh, uh, officers I worked for, one of my sergeants back home, Sergeant Kirchy, he... Uh, uh, when I was a reserve officer, he he really taught me a lot of stuff. You know, he, he told me when I was uh, uh, just a baby cop, he says, look, D, not everybody needs to get a ticket. Not everybody needs to go to jail. Sometimes just needs you to be there to talk to him. That's all it needs. That kind of was up there for me. I'm like, all right, I get it. Great advice. I understand. Uh, just other officers throughout the years, just meeting people that have taught me how to... You know, you don't have to be that asshole every day. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Those have kind of been what's, what's been important to me through well. my life. That makes sense. All right, Eric,
0: so tell me about the best trainer that you've had along the way or best training, uh, I guess, class.
6: Well, that's tough. There's a lot. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to the International School of Tactical Medicine in California. Uh, I also went to uh, another class down in San Diego. Um, of the name of the company now but uh, they do props uh, for movies and they train a lot of uh, sf folks down there um, and they have a whole village set up that looks like somewhere in the middle east um, and that was excellent training they they hired amputees uh, they had these blood systems that would bleed and so the tactical medicine piece of that um, treating someone while there's automatic gunfire and they f- would shoot rpgs at us and uh, all sorts of things like that with real life smells and, um, the actors did a great job. So just great immersive training, uh, with that, with all those distractors. Uh, so that was a great program. I have to look it up and I feel bad I forget their name, but international school of tactical medicine also did a great job. Uh, very similar type training, uh, a little more in depth than the other one, uh, but it was just a different style of class.
3: Wow. Okay.
0: So. Where do you go, I guess, when you go to books or podcasts or trainers, what's your go-to? Wow.
6: Um, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. Sure. This is odd talking on a podcast. Yeah. So (laughs) where are your first? Uh, So I go on the internet quite a bit. Uh, We also have uh, quite a bit of uh, programs uh, for our agency, uh, different uh, learning platforms online. Um, but gosh, think of a, uh, I can't, I can't think of a one to give you over another right now. I apologize.
1: That, that's okay. Just be prepared. Cause Eddie's got a whole bunch of other questions, that <laughs> probably
0: not prepared for, and I will circle back. Uh, yes. All right. So what's one of the things that you think, uh, going forward, Travis, Which one of the, the, I guess, the the lessons or one of the messages you want to push out to the public to tell them about what happened that day or what what it is about training and and the job in general?
4: I would say if we didn't learn anything else from that night, as far as being just a member of this community, is not just being in law enforcement, being a firefighter or a paramedic, it is up to every member of this community to have that life saving training, even to a minimal level to apply a tourniquet, stop bleeding, perform CPR, because we saw these heroic acts throughout that night. Your average person saved more lives than anybody sitting in this room that night. When you hear these stories of heroism, I mean, I saw one story where a young kid, 17 years old, I think shot in the neck and he saved five people. I saved one person uh, and I was paid to be out there.
0: Yeah, that's pretty incredible stuff. Mm -hmm. I like that message.
3: Jake, sir.
0: Tell me about your best car chase.
3: I'm not allowed to discuss the P word. You can't say pursuit. Can't say pursuit. Can't say it anymore Attempt to overtake attempt to overtake. Yeah, attempt to overtake. Um, with the highway patrol, we've had a lot, so no more, that's any more impactful than what every other agency is dealing with across the valley. And, um, you know, we've had some pretty impactful ones. Thankfully, no one's been, been hurt in the pursuits I've been involved with. How uh, we've been able to catch some, some have gotten away. It's, it's just the nature of law enforcement kind of with what we're dealing with now. And yeah, absolutely. Um, but we've had some pretty impactful ones when Travis and I first were working graveyards together. Um, some ones that went the length of the valley with some pretty violent offenders and based with some of our partnerships, we had Metro help us out with quite a number of them and utilizing canine assets and air assets and trying to get those folks uh, meeting the corrections officers that they needed to meet. We were able to kind of facilitate that after those, <laughs> those pursuits.
4: I can think of one where I know Jake was responding code to me where I was in, my, in a pretty nasty fight myself and he happened to have a ride along that night. And I think Jake was coming to me at a very high rate of speed. And I believe that ride along is still in therapy. But, and yeah, we had some exciting nights. And I remember Jake being not close to me but being there very quickly.
3: Crown Vicks, you can, you can push them pretty hard. They hold what? up pretty well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Corn, they corner like they're on rails. That's yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. They, that's it.
3: they hold up they hold up quite well.
0: All right, Dean, tell me about the most famous person you've had any police interaction with. <laughs>
2: I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about that one. Oh. All right, we can, we can think, pass by that. i well, me to put you on the be, spot. Still be in uh, litigation. How about just tell me about <laughs> the incident
0: and not the person?
2: Uh, it involves some heavy drinking and maybe a lady uh, in a room that wasn't supposed to be in a room and uh, <laughs> several other male individuals that uh, had their way with her. I got you. And he was um, a singer? gotcha
0: totally understand it yeah all right yeah (laughs) i'll change it i'll change it up a little bit i'm coming back to you eric because casey was right i still have stuff for you i bet
3: please ask him about his mustache ask him about his mustache
0: how many years you say you have on here
6: 19 Uh, years with our department 19 years. 19
0: years so 19 years in the fire service actually quite a bit more because you were a firefighter in the in the army as well right yes sir who's the best cook you've ever uh worked with
6: oh wow um I probably have to give it to a guy that's retired now, but his name's Brian Alexis.:
0: What was his dish?:
6: Everything. I, I can't give you a specific, because he, everything he made was top-notch, and he would even plate it at times for you and, and call you in uh, as your dish was ready. It, pretty impressive. There's a lot of good cooks, don't get me wrong. But. Oh, Hold on, let me, let, totally let me change chilling.
1: cameras to, uh, to Jake just so he can confirm that that actually happens at a fire department. It yeah, does happen yeah, at a fire yeah, department. Yeah, that's yeah right. d- it does happen at a fire department. A,
0: we joke We joke a lot, cops and firefighters, we joke a lot, but if you want the best meal, that's where you're going to find it.
4: Well, yeah. there's a 7-Eleven off of Sahara that will plate our hot dogs for law enforcement. <laughs> nice. <laughs> very, very good. good. They warm <laughs> your buns,
0: too. True. It's true. It's, it's true. A, <laughs> fantastic. That's a very good uh information all right favorite book jake
3: uh i don't know there's a lot i read a lot mitch album books are good and obviously you know as a cop you're always stuck reading you know a lot of the jocko stuff and you know dave grossman obviously and kind of things that are impactful Um, motivational books Just leadership books yeah right like in law enforcement you're a leader whether you want to be or not so learning how to speak to people and how to articulate your message, whether you're conveying it to subordinates or your command team or whether it be to the general public, I think is extremely important. So trying to get better at that every day and being a student of this game, I think is extremely important. So whatever you can do to kind of read up on that is if you're not doing that, you're doing your community a disservice. So a lot of times in any field people get complacent. So to read books, you know, like Jocko or Colonel Dave Grossman, it's it's just enhancing your skill set. And there's a reason why doctors practice medicine and lawyers practice law you know, cops, we should be practicing our field and always continually striving to get better. So a lot of that comes with self-education.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Travis, Dean, best books, favorite podcasts, favorite speakers.
4: Um, I completely agree with everything that Jake was just saying about that, but my favorite book is probably something called Bud Sweat and T and it's about being an amateur golf <laughs> golfer, breaking into the the PGA oh. and, and the, the after hours of that lifestyle, but yeah, entertaining read. But yeah, I guess it's not mm-hmm. as appropriate for the this environment.
0: Yeah, but it's something that breaks <laughs> you away. It's something that uh, that's that's what you use. Yeah, man, absolutely. You, got, you gotta have a you gotta have a separation from the the day to day life of our of our grind,
2: and then you have to have something. Dean. Well, I'm actually more of a movie guy. Tell me about it. Not not much of a uh, a book reader. However, I did read book Chuck Yeager's book. Uh, years ago and uh, a couple things stuck with me and, and one of the biggest things was a line where he says you do it what you can for as long as you can and when you can't you don't you don't quit you just back up and take another path and continue on and it was just kind of stuck with me you know and I always kind of looked up to the guy they uh, just just the whole fact that that uh, you know he never really finished high school so they say he got his GED and he never went to college and they're like are oh, you'll you'll never be a NASA astronaut and, wow look who he was yeah yeah and that's I kind of missed mr ball on that one as far as i'm concerned and you know he's an amazing was a was an amazing man sure absolutely you know, so that was it other than that raiders of the last ark let's go come on let's do this thing every day you yeah. can watch that one. i could watch that movie a billion times i love it casey what do you think what do you have for him
1: no, uh, I think we touched on a lot of really good <clears throat> subjects and I really appreciate everything that's going on. Cause I'm just the guy sitting here listening and making sure everybody's going to be able to hear you. Um, Jake, I want to address something with you. Cause it's obviously that you're embedded with a distinctive training environment that's specific to this valley and you're surrounded by people that you've done this with. And you've also traveled across the United States with alert to, to train other people. Can you give me some similarities and differences of what you've experienced here and what you experience elsewhere because this is a big metropolitan area. Eddie and I came from, you know, big metroplexes and stuff like that. We talked a little bit about MACTAC, you know, you know, where it works for small cities and, you know, small departments and stuff like that. But tell me some of your experiences about that because I think a lot of people listening are listening to this story about what happened here. And we talked about how, you know, training beforehand and how it's going to be impacted later. Give me some experience on that.
3: As far as similarities go, I think that the, pardon me, the level of professionalism that you find here within the Las Vegas Valley and the level of commitment and the willingness to go ahead and give up things within your personal life to enhance those that you work with, um, you find within the adjunct community with Alert, right? Mm So as far as similarities go, like when we travel with Alert, right? What am I giving up? I'm giving up time with my family. I'm giving up time with my agency. I'm giving up time with people that I care about. Well, the people that are sitting at this table do that every day. Like Dean, Bert, and Bobby have been doing it for a decade with, with Metro and giving up their weekends and giving up their time and not being able to go to kids' birthdays and not being able to do all those things. But if it's important for you to train those that you work with in that level of professionalism and commitment, it's something that you find here in the valley and it's something that I've experienced with Alert. Right. So it's it's if you're committed to the job, I think that you'll see that across fire, le, EMS. It doesn't matter. So. Like I've been extremely fortunate to be a part of that community right like to have these guys that didn't have to be like hey Let's welcome in a state trooper, or, you know It's let's, let's bring other people into the mix and to have the relationships with our fire captains and our fire partners I'm fortunate enough and I say it pretty consistently to surround myself with people who know more than I do Right like these two gentlemen right here as far as what they've done in the valley have forgotten more about active assailant response than I've learned to this point point. And I get the benefit to go ahead and learn off of them on a pretty consistent and daily basis, right? And it's not about pay grade or rank or what you can put on your collar, stars and bars or bugles. It's just about the message and how you can deliver it. And that is very similar, whether I'm in Sanford, Florida or you know, Ohio or Connecticut or here within the Las Vegas Valley, like professionals are gonna act professional and they're gonna go ahead and convey that message. So it's, it's extremely similar. Also the desire to wanna learn, um, Every cop, firefighter, EMS, anybody that's in this types of professions, they want to do their job at a high level. They want to be trained. They want to receive instruction so that way they can go out and serve their communities. Um, just try and provide it in a manner in which it's conducive for them to learn, you know? And whether like I said, it's a traveling show or it's here local. Um, there's a lot of similarities, so. Dean, what you got?
2: I just wanted to kind of get on with that too that uh, some of the stuff that Jake brings as well from what he sees across the the country we like to to bring in here as well you know it's not just about what we teach here we we're open to bringing in anything I mean we just want to make it better that's what we want to do and and I think that happens across the country and I would be extremely remiss if I didn't mention a couple people that were extremely significant to um, our program here MACTAC itself Uh, the first one is Alan Beck Alan Beck was uh, one of the first ones that helped start this program Uh, when it first started it was just Alan and I and and uh, Joel Martin sitting inside a a little room to try to get this program started for this department and um, unfortunately Alan was uh, gunned down uh, at CC's Pizza years ago in 2014 and then uh, the the last is uh, Adrian Crandall who was on our team for a while he uh, when we were sitting around one day he's like why aren't why aren't we working with the fire department? I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? He's like, what, what? Why should we should be working with the fire department. I'm like, well, let's, let's start looking at this. And that's kind of where the ball started rolling for us as far as uh, rescue task force. So to not mention them, I think would be a disservice to them. They, they really uh, were the ones that, that, um, uh, have kind of helped us all get going on this. So I, sh- I should, definitely mention them.
1: Yeah. And I'll ask all of y'all this with <clears> them <throat> saying that were you all officers, lower ranking at the time when y'all came up with this and then had to go through a chain
2: of command to actually get that thing going? I don't think I can get any lower than I am right now. <laughs> um, this is this is about the basement for me. It's a pinnacle of my career right here. But, yeah, everything we've done, we've had to push and push and push. And and um, it's about having the right people in the right place at the right time. And we've been very fortunate that uh, um, through the process of, of creating MACTAC for for our, our department, um, we've been good. We've, we've met some resistance on the way, and, and we've had some other people who have, have pushed us very hard. And it's been good. I mean, I don't, I don't think anything's ever going to be easy. Sure. So you're, yeah.
3: starting, you're starting to see it now, like not in this room, obviously, but there's murmurs with our, some of our colleagues, like we've experienced our event. So what is the need for future training, right? And um, having those open levels of dialogue with your command is extremely important. Um, same thing, like Dean mentioned, Like I've been fortunate enough to work for a command team that, for whatever reason, one way or another, they kind of listen to my feedback. So when I say that we need to implement more MACTAC training and have it standardized for everybody, I've been fortunate enough to have lieutenants and captains and majors that have been like, yep, absolutely, I agree with you. So to have that support has been really good. But it's predominantly, I know it sounds crazy, but you look at Dean Burt and Bobby as patrol officers, myself, I was just a basic trooper, Travis is a trooper, and for a lot of our agencies here in the Valley, like it's driven by people that are boots on ground, but how else would you, like I wouldn't want it any other way. Like at the end of the day, like I absolutely respect rank and people who work above me and they have to make decisions that are far above my pay grade, but in, I would never want to sit in those chairs because I don't know what they know. But when it comes to tactics and what it is that we have to respond <clears> to on a daily basis, a lot of times people are removed for quite a while, right? So they don't know what we know. So to have that dialogue back and forth to feed off each other's really beneficial in the Valley.
6: Sure. Anything from the fireside? I would echo the same thing. I was a captain, um, when I started getting involved in it and really as it came to the forefront, uh, of being a thing. Uh, and we've had uh, some really strong support. I'm talking for my agency and some, uh, not as strong support. Um, but overall our agency really, uh, backs this program. Um, as far as uh, utilizing it, uh, having an SOP for it or a policy for it, uh, and, and doing training, uh, recurrent training with our uh, with our partners within the Valley. Um, Chief Cooper, our Special Operations Chief, is really pushes it hard um, and is a big proponent for it and, and makes sure that it continues to be an ongoing thing with our agency, uh, and not just ours, but the partnership we share with the other Uh, fire departments within the valley uh, especially the county because we run with them uh, more than any of the others
3: and casey if i can touch on something real quick like you talk about those partnering relationships it's not just le fire and ems so you talk about critical incident management we dispatch tow companies to every critical event we have now and it's not predominantly to deal with offender vehicles or subject vehicles it's to tow cops vehicles right right because we park terribly right so you (laughs) talk about like having those relationships and just open dialogue with people stakeholders in your valley or where it is that you live and work whoever's listening to this like if you're not reaching out to those people because you're too prideful or you're afraid to have those conversations like, like please like reach out to those people and build those relationships when we have a critical event like we're going to dispatch toes to come assist us whether it be ingress or egress or getting cops vehicles <clears throat> out of the way or whatever we need and we didn't really think about that so much prior to ten one when you've got 600 cops coming in parking on center medians on las vegas boulevard and Parking wherever they could, but it's lessons learned. So um, those relationships are gonna drive your response and the success or failure of your response. Those relationships and communication are gonna kind of kind of dictate how successful you are.
2: So funny that Jake brings that up. One of the things that, that we've tried to be, to push over the last several years is is with the community and doing these presentations and stuff that we do out in the community. We've we've met with every school. Uh, business nightclub we go out and do presentation for them and it may be something simple as the run hide fight you know something along that lines but we get with them we do the mapping program for them so we know what their building looks like and and have response to them we push our psu our problem solving units or our, our community oriented policing units out to them so they meet with them so they have an ownness into their response so they know that you know those first few minutes those critical minutes you need to take care of yourself a little bit before we can even get there you know we want them the the businesses and and the community of of Vegas here itself to be able to understand what our response is so they know what's coming and they can take care of those first critical minutes until we can get to them
0: yeah that's big so we'll kind of close things off for coming up on the two hour mark and really appreciate all your time Um, one of the things that we've done in the program is we've expanded into this uh, e-learning side in case he's heading that up so we've spoken a lot about the RTF model if you uh, if you guys are in the uh, in our industry in the first responder industry or a fire guy a a police guy one of the admin guys if you want to learn a little bit more about RTF the uh, Marty Adcock who's one of our regional managers um, he put together a great webinar and it's loaded up on our on our website you can find it over there he has a great sit-down with the Austin area guys and how they use the RTF model. Uh, in they have festival after festival after incident after incident, and it's been a it's been a great test run for pretty much anything that we've come up with. They've put it to good work, so we want to do that. Uh, I'll remind everybody, guys, all you guys, keep training, keep your standards high, and uh, keep keep doing what you're doing. We re- really appreciate you being here, Casey.
1: Thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. anything. Anybody have anything else before we sign off?
3: No, brother. Thanks
1: for for having having us. us.
0: Thank you. Thanks, guys.
1: Thanks, guys. And we are out.